0: Welcome to University Hill, located on the campus of the University of British Columbia in beautiful Vancouver. Each week, we gather on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam people. We worship, sing, pray, and engage with Scripture as we seek to grow in faith and as followers of Jesus. We pray that this podcast of Scripture passages and sermons preached will bless your own faith journey, And of course, you're always welcome to join us on Sunday morning. Check out uhail.net for a Zoom link and more information. Our second reading this morning is from the book of James, chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers and sisters, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For all of us make many mistakes. Anyone who makes no mistakes in speaking is perfect, able to keep the whole body in check with a bridle. If we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we guide their whole bodies. Or look at ships, though they are so large that it takes strong winds to drive them, yet they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great exploits. How great a forest is set ablaze by a small fire, and the tongue is a fire. The tongue is placed among our members as a world of iniquity. It stains the whole body sets on fire the cycle of nature, and is itself set on fire by hell. For every species of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by the human species. But no one can tame the tongue, a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse those who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and brackish water? Can a fig tree, my brothers and sisters, yield olives or a grapevine figs? No more can salt water yield fresh. The word of our Lord.
1: Let's pray together. Holy God, uh, we give you thanks for the gift of your word. We pray that you'd help us to hear it well so that we can articulate it well, so that we can use our words to make you better known. We pray that you would bless the words of my mouth, and the meditations of our hearts this morning, that they would be acceptable in your sight. And we ask it in the name of Jesus, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So uh, for the last several weeks, we've been in the letter of James, and you just heard we're, we're sticking with that this week. And, and as much as I love this letter, uh, I, I, I've never much liked the beginning of today's passage. <laughs> you know, you know, James says that not many of uh, you should become teachers. Now, here he's talking about, Uh, teachers in the church in particular, but maybe this is a time of year where that (laughs) rings true otherwise. Not many of you should become teachers because we know that teachers will be judged with greater strictness. I'm not a big fan of that part. Um, I don't recall having had that explained to me when I was going through the process of being ordained. It seems uh, not really fair to have it sprung on me now. I'm not even really sure I totally agree with James here. And not just because it makes me feel better if he's wrong, uh, though it would, but because I don't think that I should be any more responsible for living out my baptism than anyone else. Maybe this is a, another reason that uh, the the father of the Protestant Revolution, or, <laughs> Reformation, uh, did, didn't wasn't a big fan of this letter. Yeah, you know, a big part of the reformers' conviction was that the gospel has to do with individual lives, uh, with everyday lives, regardless of our vocation. So everyone's responsible for working out the details in our own context, in our own lives, in our own uh, everyday. Uh, That's where we get this idea of the priesthood of all believers, right? There is no hierarchy of spiritual accountability or culpability, (laughs) just different jobs in the church. After all, James himself says that we all make many mistakes, and if we all make every mistakes. Why should one person's mistakes be of more consequence than than the rest? On the other hand, this does make some sense, I think, within the context of the whole letter. You know, on, on its own, it makes me a little bit edgy. But what have we been hearing James say over and over again? That we're not meant to be just hearers of the word, but doers of it. We're not meant to just listen to good ideas about who and how God is. We're we're supposed to live the gospel, this good news that in Jesus, God is uh, making all things new, that in and through Jesus, God has made a new way for us to be in the world in relation to God, or within ourselves, amongst each other, and all of creation. We're supposed to let that be the foundation of our lives. Every moment, every interaction, every relationship, every undertaking is infused with the truth that God is at work to get the world that God wants. We don't just learn that. We don't just think about it. We don't just sing and pray about it. We, we live it. We do it. To do otherwise sells us short. But you know, maybe in the grand scheme of things, it, it, it is easy, or safer rather to hear this stuff and not do it than to say it and not do it. I mean, I still don't like that, uh, but it does make some sense. Now, throughout the scriptures, there seems to be a fair bit more kind of divine patience for what James calls these mistakes that we all make than there is for hypocrisy. Right? Some of the most beautiful scenes in the gospel are between Jesus and, and, and folks who's, uh, who have not been living exactly according to the will and way of God. You think of the, the story of the woman caught in adultery from John chapter 8, or you know everybody's favorite little guy, Zacchaeus, right? These, these wonderful stories. Or, or most profoundly, when Jesus is being tortured and killed, when he's hanging from the cross, he uses his last breath to pray forgiveness over his killers because they don't know what they're doing. And that's amazing grace. It's breathtaking. But on the other hand, Jesus has some fairly harsh things to say to the folks he calls whitewashed tombs. (laughs) The people who claim to know better and don't do it. People whose lips drip with the, the, the words of life, but whose lives leave trails of carnage. Teachers who heap up heavy religious burdens on folks, but don't lift a finger to help. These folks don't come off so well. In fact, Jesus had seemed to have a lot more time for people who who said the wrong thing and did the right thing than for those who said the right thing and did the wrong thing. So perhaps James is just echoing Jesus here, reminding us how foolish, how arrogant to say that that God wants the world one way and to continue to live in it in another way. I think it's a good reminder that when we bear witness to the gospel with our words, we're handling serious stuff. It's good stuff, seriously good stuff, but it is serious, right? The gospel is not pretty good news. It's the good news, the best news. It's the news that turns the world right side or upside down or right side up, depending on our perspective. And so it doesn't make any sense to say that it's true and then live as it's not. We don't talk about forgiveness and then refuse to forgive. We don't talk about God's lavish grace and then live stingy lives. We don't talk about justice and then live in indifference. We could go on and on. And again, it's not about following the rules so that we are in a place at God's table. It's about living coherent lives. It's about letting what we believe be true in the light of Jesus. What we believe to be true in the light of Jesus about God, about ourselves, about our neighbors, about all of creation, takes shape in our everyday lives. It's not saying one thing in here and living something different out there. It's refusing to submit ourselves to anything less than the hope and peace and joy and love that God has called us into. If the gospel is true here in worship, it's true all the time. And we get to learn to live that truth, right? Day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, we get to let our lives be shaped in the will and way of Jesus. We get to let the fruit of the spirit root deeper and deeper and bloom bigger and bigger. We get to be people of hope and peace and joy and love and generosity and kindness and faithfulness and self-control. In every instance, we 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 get to be that. We're not always that. <laughs> we make many mistakes but we're moving that direction. By God's grace, we're learning to move in that direction with the grain of the universe in everything that we do. So maybe what James says here is not so much a restriction or warning as invitation. You know, Maybe in my, my better moments, I can imagine that what feels like a threat might actually be a promise. If I'm going to say this stuff in here, if I'm going to teach this stuff in here, I get to be on the hook for it out there. Right? If I believe the stuff that I say, I don't have to temper it when things are less congenial. I mean, I make many mistakes, just like James says, but if I believe that God's going to get the world that God wants, I don't have to live as though the way things are are the way they're always going to be. Plus, if I, if I believe the stuff I preach and I trust in God's extravagant grace, why wouldn't I want to be on the hook for it? Why shouldn't we want a God who expects something of us? Why, shouldn't, why should we want a God who's indifferent to our lives? We don't have to be just hearers of the word. We don't have to be just sayers of the word. We're not passive observers of what God is up to. We're in the thick of it, right? We, we get to be doers of the stuff we say, come what may. And again, one more time, we we, we we do it all in grace, right? We all make many mistakes and God loves us anyways. We all have... Days and seasons and and moments where we're more like the prodigal son squandering the father's good gifts. Uh, And and the gospel is that the father is there waiting for us, watching for us to come back home, running for us when we're still a long way off, eager to hold us and kiss us and, and throw a party for us. And if we believe that, we get to live that for ourselves and for others. We get to be signs of God's love and mercy and God's goodness and grace and whatever we do. We get to bring the kingdom of heaven party wherever we are. And mercifully, I think James turns pretty quickly away from just teachers and and says that this applies to all of us, which is what I'm going to do too. If we take this section that we heard last week, we we see James there expanding on some of the things that St. Paul says in the letter to the Colossians or to the Corinthians. Uh, where he insists that whatever we do, we get to do in the name and way of Jesus and to the glory of God, whether in word or deed. Last week, James reminded us that our deeds need to line up with what God's up to in the world. If God is about justice and love and righteousness, then we're about that stuff too, and, and actively so. It doesn't make any sense to encourage a naked and starving person, James says, to keep warm and eat their fill without giving them food and clothing. We're not just hearers of the word, we're doers of it. But now he's reminding us that we don't just line up our actions with God, but that when we speak, whatever and whenever we speak, our whole witness is on the line. Whenever we open our mouths, the world is at stake. Just as it doesn't make sense to do one thing or say one thing and do another, it doesn't make any sense to do one thing and then speak in a way that undermines our actions. Right? If we're feeding the poor but grumbling about them, there's something off. If we're treating people with kindness when they're in the room and gossiping about them when they're not there, there's something off. Now we're made in the image of God, we're starting back in Genesis. We're made in the image of God, who, who makes the universes with the word, who holds all things together by His word whose word moves into the world and sets up shop among us. Our words, every bit as much as our actions, create the world. It doesn't make any sense for us to talk and pray and sing about grace and love and mercy in one breath, and then to speak harshly or coarsely or indifferently in the next. And I think this is about more than scrubbing certain four-letter words and colorful phrases from our vocabulary. It's about paying attention to the world we make with our words. You know, the the purest language can still defile. I don't don't need to swear at my kids to diminish them. I don't need to use foul language with a coworker to demean them or to make them feel inadequate or uh, unloved. One biting comment is enough to damage a relationship. One thoughtless word can create a landslide of shame and hurt and disunity. Our words are not neutral. Our words are not neutral. They make and break things. They build relationships, or they tear them down. With the same tongue, we're just as capable of cursing as praising, James says. We bless God, and we curse God's images. That's not the way it's meant to be. Right? That's incoherent. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense to sing, great is thy faithfulness, and then speak in ways that are unfaithful. It doesn't make sense to speak of unconditional love and then speak ruthlessly in our workplaces. It doesn't make sense to pray about forgiveness and then speak in ways that keep people bound in guilt. It doesn't make sense to speak of God's delight and then let our words keep people mired in shame. It doesn't make sense to say that God is making all things new and then to speak in classrooms and boardrooms and checkout lines and traffic jams as though nothing is really different. Now, of course, sometimes it's totally appropriate and completely faithful to give expression to grief and anger and hard emotions. Now, the fact that our hope is often unseen. We don't use our words to mask the truth, even if the truth is hard or painful. James is not suggesting that we plaster over the hard stuff with with pleasantries. The point is not to speak nicely. The point is to speak faithfully to speak truth and love, to articulate our hurts and frustrations without letting them get the last word. Now, the Psalms are the primary example of this in the Bible. I think that the prayer book of the Bible is full of these prayers that are a long way off from the power of positive thinking. Yeah, I mean, some are downright nasty. If you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all, is not a biblical principle, at least not according to the Psalms. You know, but even the wretched ones are offered as prayer. They're even the wretched ones are offered in the hope and confidence that they're heard by the God who is actively at work to overcome the division and death that would destroy us. Right? When we offer that stuff up faithfully, God's word back to us is grace and healing and, and hope. Now, as I was preparing for this week and, and thinking about this passage, I, I kept coming back to this. Image is one of my favorite images in all of Scripture. It comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 7. Um, there's lots of wild images in the book of Revelation, but here Saint, uh, the narrator, St. John, is, is getting this kind of ecstatic uh, tour of what's to come. Right? And there's all sorts of things going on. Some are overwhelming, some are worse than that. <laughs> but then all of a sudden he looks up and he sees this vast congregation, a multitude greater than anyone can count, from every nation, from all people, from all languages, standing before heaven's throne and singing their guts out in wonder and love and praise. And I think in that image, John is telling his churches, he's telling us that there's going to come a day, there's going to come a time, even if it's hard to imagine right now, particularly in an election season, where uh, when all language will be infused with wonder, love, and praise. All language will be infused with wonder, love, and praise. Every voice will be raised in the presence of the one who's making all things new. When God gets the world God wants, it's going to echo with with songs of beauty and spontaneous, unbridled gladness and joy. Every tear wiped away, John says, every belly filled, every voice singing heaven's song. Now, obviously, that day is not here yet. (laughs) There's an awful lot of noise, an awful lot of words swirling around us and within us that don't sound much like wonder, love, and praise. But as people who bear the name of Jesus, we get to let God's future invade our present. We're becoming the first fruits of God's harvest, the sign of God's coming kingdom in all that we do and in all that we say. We're learning to live lives fully integrated with God's very good dream for all things. So I want to invite us this week to, to pay attention to our, our language, not just for this week, but you know, in the wake of this particular passage, just to spend the week tending to our language. And again, I don't just mean ridding ourselves of naughty words, though I'm sure James would encourage us to do that. But let's practice speaking as though the kingdom of heaven depends upon what we say. Now let's let our words build up the right things and tear down the wrong ones. Let's refuse to be careless with our words when we could be careful. Let's don't bless God in here and curse God's images out there. Let's not sing about love and then speak lovelessly. Let's trust that we can be fountains of bitter water, as James says, or we could be fountains of the water of life. And let's choose wisely. Let's understand that whenever we open our mouths, we have a chance to join in heaven's song. Every time we open our mouths, we can bless or we can break. Every time we open our mouths, we get to, we get to, speak in tones of wonder love and praise so may it be so amen